Have you ever wanted to get inside the minds of today's top entrepreneurs and creative thinkers? The Upside with Brad Keywell gives you intimate access to conversations with the world's smartest, most creative people. David Axelrod has been hailed a political mastermind. A former newspaper reporter turned political strategist, he has worked behind the scenes on more than 150 campaigns. In 1992, David met a young Barack Obama through a mutual friend. More than a decade later, they joined forces on Obama's 2004 Senate campaign. In 2008, and again in 2012, he served as chief strategist and media advisor for Obama's successful back-to-back presidential bids. Today, David is the director of the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and hosts his own podcast, The Axe Files. He's also a New York Times bestselling author for his 2015 memoir, Believer, My 40 Years in Politics. David and Brad sat down to discuss the traits of a great leader, the defining moment of his life, how to create a culture of excellence, and how baseball is like politics. Plus, he dishes on the kind of politicians he'd never work with again, the time Steve Jobs hung up on him, and the story behind the famous Obama campaign slogan, Yes, We Can. It's the third and final episode in our series with political disruptors. This is The Upside. Okay, David Axelrod, you are a, a legend and you're, let's start Sorry. over, okay? Sorry about that. Well, you're a legend in many ways and you're drinking Diet Coke, not beer. So yes. I welcome you to The Upside and I have so many questions to ask. My orientation is really as much entrepreneurship and storytelling, if you will, than politics. But let's start with politics and Axe, which is your nickname. Right. Does that have any relationship to your personality? No, none. It, it is completely a function of the fact that, I mean, I, that was a nickname of mine when I was a kid, and it sort of went dormant. And then when we had the Obama campaign, the leadership of the campaign was me and David Plouffe. And uh, it was confusing because there were two Davids. So what did Obama he get, used did, to call me he, Axe. Did David Pluff keep the David and you got Axe? No, it was Pluff and Axe. Nice. Pluff and Axe. Nice. Yeah. So um, uh, that was, it was for ease of identification as much as It's a as cool anything. nickname. But then it caught on and, you know, everybody started calling me that. So, And let me take you back then to start before we get to what happened in the late 2000, mm-hmm. that decade. Right. Starting in journalism, even before, you grew up in New York. Yes. And I've known you for a long time personally, but my homework on you shows a phenomenal student with focus, I think, at least from my reading. Do you? Well, I'm glad that your research shows that I've covered my tracks effectively. <laughs> you know what I was? I was, uh, I was one of these hyperactive kids before kids were identified that way. So I was smart enough when I could attend, but I was really, really... I had a hard time attending, but all the time teachers were adapting to me. You know, I had a fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Langdale, who I will always remember, who told my mother, I'm just going to let him pace in the back of the room when he doesn't need to be doing something, just to get some of that energy. That's a kind Uh, teacher. uh, She was great. I'll tell you, I went to all public schools in New York City, and I had phenomenal teachers back then in the 60s. You went to what school? I went to, well, this is New York, man. PS40, junior high school, 104, and then Stuyvesant High School. Which, which was, was a, a gifted ma- and talented. Math and science uh, sort of a magnet school, which was hilarious because I wasn't exactly a mathematician or a scientist, but I tested in there and muddled my way through those classes 
doing a lot of student politics and writing. You know, I was the head of the literary magazine there. And when you think about the way your teachers treated you, I would propose that that's not the way you would be treated today. That's right. You'd be medicated, well, First of all, you'd right? be drugged. Right. And so, yeah, I think way too much. So what about, and given your involvement with creating the Institute of Politics at University of Chicago, you understand education as well as any. What's your take on, does education today, the system, actually educate? Well, I have a, a kind of warped perspective because I'm at the University of Chicago, and by definition, the, the kids who are there are uh, very, very bright. And they draw a lot from their studies. I, I, I suspect they push the very excellent faculty there as hard as the faculty pushes them. And you're familiar with the place and the, certainly it's the remarkable. graduate schools in Booth and so on. So there's a lot of incisive thinkers that come through there. And whether it's the result of the education system or whether it's the result of their own qualities, I suspect it's a little of both. But, you know, one of the reasons I started the Institute of Politics is everything that I've done in my life was largely a function of my experience being self-taught. I had never taken a journalism course and I became a journalist. And I learned by doing it, you know. I had never made an ad and I became a political ad maker, you know. So at every stage of my life, I've done things that I had never done before. What was missing when I was a student there, because I went there as a student 45 years ago, you know, I went there in part because I was interested in politics. And I thought, Chicago, what an interesting town. They just had this calamitous Democratic convention right there on the south side. There was this budding black independent political movement. I thought how cool it would be to be there. Last of the big city machines with Mayor Daley. And I got here, and at that time, I could not find anyone at the university who really wanted to talk about anything that happened after the year, you know, like 1800. Hmm. So I started writing Why'd for, you and you, for newspapers. That's uh, how you got into journalism. Yes. To, but you didn't take classes. You just did it. I did it. I just did it. I had such a passionate interest in politics that I just consumed myself with learning about the sort of Byzantine world of Chicago politics, and I was able to write about it. So I then say... Where was the inspiration that led you so certainly to politics? Well, the inspiration came really, I mean, it sounds peculiar, but I can point to an, a, the precise date, which is uh, October 27, 1960. And on that day... 1960 what? Ni 1960. That's my birthday, nine years after that. Is that right? Yeah. October 27th? Yeah. Well, this is karma, man. Wow. I, I got to absorb that. Yeah. John F. Kennedy was uh, campaigning in New York City 10 stops that day, so long ago that Democrats had to campaign in New York City 10 days or 12 days before the election. And he came to Stuyvesant Town, where I grew up, which was a housing development built for returning war veterans. And the woman who took care of me when my mother was at work was this uh, African-American woman, wonderful woman, who really kind of raised me in many ways, named Jessie Berry. Jesse decided that we should see this, and she took me out to... How old are you? You're five. five. 20th Street. She put me on a mailbox to watch, and this big boulevard filled in with people, and then this guy jumps up on the platform at 20th and 1st in front of the old Plymouth shop, which was a clothing, women's clothing store, and he starts talking. Everybody is watching him, and, you know, I sensed 
that something big was happening here. I couldn't obviously understand then. I now know what he said because I went back and found the speech on Google. Wow. Uh, but uh, Your gut, you knew it I inside knew that, and, and I thought, wow. He was talking about history and he was talking about the future and it's, it seemed really vital to me. And I started watching him very closely when he became president, watching the news. When I could read, I, I started reading newspapers at a very young age, worked for his brother, when he, when I was nine, I went out and worked for Bobby Kennedy. Who was running for the. I wasn't the strategist, <laughs> but I went out and uh, gave out leaflets for wow. him, and uh, just really became consumed by both news. And now my mother had been a newspaper reporter before she went into advertising. And your dad? He was a psychologist. He was an immigrant, came from Ukraine during the pogroms, and kind of bounced around and. He was a baseball player. He came here. I think he learned how to play baseball before he learned English. And he played with Hank Greenberg, Sandlock Baseball, got a college scholarship. Wow. And then he kind of bounced around doing things, helping out at his father's shoe store in Brooklyn. And then, you know, he served during the war and he got his Ph.D. with the G.I. Bill after the war. Wow. So all of us are either reflections or reactions, in my opinion, to our parents and our upbringing. So especially your love for the Cubs and the White Sox. And well, your, the baseball and your... thing is big with me. Yeah. My father and I, my parents, they didn't have a very happy relationship, and they split up when I was young, and I spent every weekend with my father, and we would be at the ballpark every weekend. That's, and like Chicago, New York had two teams, Yankees and the Mets. Yeah. See, but here's the thing. I don't have these tribal loyalties in Chicago because I came from New York, whereas I hate the Yankees, so I could never root for the Yankees. My father... Deeply disliked the Yankees. He grew up a New York Giants fan. So I came to Chicago. I just love baseball. The fact that you can see a game every day. Yeah, between the two. Great thing. Yeah. But to you, is baseball more about the relationships built by sitting and watching it, or is it about the sport? I love baseball. In part, it's because I do identify it with uh, my dad and the times we spent together. And when I go with my sons, I feel that strongly. And, you know, I still, my, my, I have a 30 year old son with whom I'm constantly uh, texting and emailing about. He's primarily a Cubs fan, so a lot of it is about the Cubs, but about baseball. But um, I can't persuade my wife, Susan, who you know, uh, to like baseball because we met playing co-ed basketball, and she loves basketball, but baseball's too slow. But here's the (laughs) thing about baseball. You go to a football game. You go to a basketball game. You go to a hockey game. But when you're going to a baseball game, you say, I'm going to the ballpark. It's different. You're going to a park. So you see a game, and I love the game, but you also are outside. Yeah. You can visit. And you're talk- I like the right. pace of it. I like the pace of it. There's, because less to, there's less interruption of a conversation with right. baseball, and there's more ability to... You can do both. Yeah. And uh, so I love the game. You know? Who do you most identify as articulate lovers of the game? I, I look at you and George Will. Who else today articulates the multiplicity of baseball's beauty. Anyone else you'd yeah, say? Yeah, well, you know, uh, whether the people who are professionally, you know, the Bob Costases of the right. world and people who uh, who write about it. I've been lucky enough. Uh, I wrote a couple of pieces about the Cubs for The New Yorker, and I got to know Joe Madden, the manager, and Theo Epstein. And to hear them talk about baseball. What's it like? Poetic? Yeah, I mean, Theo, he's reverent, you know. And much in the way when I talk to you about the things you're doing, he is in a constant kind of journey of discovery. He says, you know, we know about 3% of what we 
should know, know about the game. Yeah. And he's deploying data That's constantly to try and dig deeper and understand. Right. My admiration, yeah. he's a constant learner. Yeah. You look, you can see him learning. And yeah. how about Madden? What about Well, him? the thing about Madden is, because I know you're also inter interested in leadership, he is one of the great leaders that I have. I, Theo has these uh, great leadership qualities as well. But Madden, I liken a baseball season, particularly when you have championship aspirations uh, to a presidential race, in that it is long. It is, by definition, going to be marked by ups and downs. And it's all conducted under the watchful eye of millions of people who think they can do it better than you right. and don't know shit. And so um, his excellence, how would you capture in a couple but seconds? But his brilliance is that he focuses his guys on the task, not on the, like he never talks about, he says, I never talk about winning and losing because everybody wants to win, but that just gets you tight. He says, process is fearless. Just do the things that you need to do. Just feel the ball properly, take the right base, do so those things. And he said, the rest will take care of itself. But he's a brilliant sort of student of people. He's a brilliant communicator. Yeah, everything that Madden does he does for a reason. And the great thing about him is that he said, look, I was in the minor leagues for 14 years and I did every job there was and I managed and I made so many mistakes. And the thing is, you got to learn from the mistakes that you make. He talked about when his team in Midland, Texas was playing badly and he said, I want to find everybody. He called the Angels. I'm finding everybody. He said, they didn't play any better. They were just pissed. He said another time he put up want ads all over the locker room, including in the can, and told the guys, you know, I want you to read these because if you keep playing like this, you're going to have to find another job. He said it was the, he said they just played worse. So the lesson he said, was. And he said, then I realized, why did we get into this game in the first place? We got into it because we love it. We like to play it. He said, and so I started focusing on kind of restoring the joy and giving them the freedom to play the game the way they wanted to play it. And that's what he does. And that's why he was so good with this young team because he took all the pressure off like of Like less them. is more almost. Or at least yeah. it's don't take yourself too well, seriously. Well, you know, he has all these crazy things like onesie nights or bringing petting zoo into the same and tell them to bring their kids or shutting them out of the locker room for a week in august until two hours before the game so they'll spend more time huh. with their families and it's, i mean he's, he's just cultural a, well oh yeah it's, okay, so, so he if, that that's the word he's creates a culture for winning and i recognized it because when we ran our race in 2008 we had a culture that made that campaign what it was and in one sentence what was the culture it was a focus on the mission and not on your status. I'll, I can't do it in a sentence, but here is the, the seminal story about that. Obama gathered the first 10 people who were working on that campaign in 2008. And he said three things. He said, first, we're going to be a grassroots campaign because that's, first of all, that's the only way we can win. But secondly, that's who I am. Right. That's what I believe. And the second thing he said was, we're not going to be leaking on each other and stabbing each other. He said, we're going to rise or fall together. Everyone here has a job and we got to rely on each other. And he said, and if I catch anybody doing that, you're going to have to leave. And the third thing he said, and this was almost the most important, he said, running for president is a deadly serious thing, but this also should be fun. He said, what an incredible opportunity to travel this country, to be a part of this process. And he said, it's going to be a once in a life experience. He said, let's have fun. And he said, don't, there are going to be bad days. 
and he said he's out of office. Now, I wrote about this, so he probably is okay with it. But he quoted that Tom Cruise from that movie, Risky Business. Remember Risky Business? Of course I remember. Sometimes you just got to say, what the fuck? (laughs) And and, And that was sort of the attitude. Just have, like, relax a little bit. And this is what I was getting at before. You measure leaders to me not on their best day but on their worst day not on your organization's best day but on its worst day and what how do you that... deal with setbacks so give me one example of a bad day well a bad day for example was when we lost the ohio and texas primaries that we poured a ton of money into when trying to get hillary clinton out of the race we just had to win one and we didn't run a very good campaign because we were so focused on trying to put her out of the race in those weeks and when we lost he said, I want to see everybody tomorrow afternoon at the headquarters. We didn't know what he's going to say. What he was going to say. He comes in with his yellow legal pad because he always had written notes to yeah. himself. And he sits down and he says, you know, I can think about a dozen things I could have done better in the last two weeks. And I bet everybody in this room can think of a dozen things they could have done better in the last two weeks. So I'm not here to sort of point fingers. I want to just have an open discussion about what went wrong and how we fix it going forward and we had a two-hour discussion at the end of it he uh, gets up and he's walking out and he says now I want you to know I'm not yelling at you and uh, it takes a couple more steps and he turns around and says of course after blowing 20 million dollars in two weeks I could yell at you (laughs) he says but I'm not yelling at you and he laughed and he walked out the door everybody in that room would have run through a wall for him Everybody was re-energized after that meeting. We did kind of talk about what went wrong and what we had to correct. That is, to me, and my experience with Obama, and I think one of his greatest strengths was, even in the presidency, when we had setbacks, when there was chaos around us and so on, he was this calm center who said, okay, everybody settle down and let's talk about what we do next. I mean, between Madden and Obama, and then I'm going to ask about you. One theme is less is more. Just relax and be a guide around what first principles, the way I say it, what must be the conditions that we operate on. And number two, learn, yeah. constantly learning. Yeah. So I ask you, your career as a journalist, pre-strategist uh, and advisor, what's something that went wrong or that you learned in that part of your life that absolutely informed your excellence as an advisor? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I learned was that at certainly at the presidential level, because I had had some bad experiences. I worked for John Edwards in 2004. It was not a good relationship. And I said to myself at that time, I would not work for anyone with whom I didn't have a really deep bond of trust because to get through a presidential race together and to do it successfully, there had to be complete trust and understanding. So do you lay that out to the candidate to say, no, I'm I think here you to have you. to make that judgment because but, I but think you either th- have it or you don't. So you, know? you don't tell the candidate what you expect from them. I mean, I started being much more selective about the candidates. I, have to, I, I, I had many weird kinds of much to the consternation of my partner's sessions where I'd sit with a candidate and at the end of it, I'd say, we're not interested in doing this race. After interviewing and, this person, yeah. and then saying, you know, we're, we're, we're choosing, I we're choosing out of you. There's a guy, Brian Schweitzer, who he became the governor of Montana, but I went out to talk to him. I was in uh, 
uh, Helena, Montana, talking to one candidate. And I flew over these mountains to where he lived. It was pouring. It was, we went, I went a little puddle jumper and you couldn't even see the mountain. And I said to the pilot, is this smart? He said, oh, I do it all the time. And we're being shaken all around. And I'm thinking, do I really want to die here? Is this the thing that I want to die for? But we get over the mountain like he promised. I get over to the Schweitzer's house and he just starts selling me on what a great candidate he would be. And I said to him, Brian, you ever hear the story about how Sandy Koufax became a great pitcher? He said, no. And I said, well, it was in spring training. I think it was 1960. And I think the catcher was Norm Seaburn. I'm not sure. Came up to him and said, kid, you throw 103 miles an hour. And it's really awesome to see. But, you know, if you threw 99 and got it over the plate, you would be <laughs> unstoppable. And I said, you ought to take a few miles off your fastball hmm. and you would be a better candidate. And he said, you come into my house and you insult me like that and you want my business. And I said, correction, I don't want your business. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, yeah. not here to take your business That's cool. anymore. But as a reporter, what gave you, right, as a reporter, it was an incredibly useful experience uh, to be a reporter. First of all, because I understood what the job of reporters uh was what was the job the job was to tell an authentic story and have an opinion or not well i don't think that the job is to editorialize in the piece if you're a reporter if you're a columnist yeah and, and, you know it's a different thing but it is to be analytical and tell people not just what a candidate is saying but why and tell a story about a campaign. So I understood the role of reporters. I also understood, and what I came to learn over time as a strategist, and certainly in the White House was, in this modern media environment, there is a symbiotic relationship. They need uh, big stories every day. The reporters do. Yes, and so, so every, day, every day is election day in Washington. Every story is the decisive story of the administration. When there was an oil leak, for example, you'll remember in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. people were, they were writing, this is Obama's Katrina, this will define his presidency, and so on. Well, it was a difficult challenge, but we solved it. And, you know, it never came up once in the 2012 campaign. And I always carry that around with me to remind myself now that I'm back behind yeah. the camera in a different role to be a little bit jaundiced about kind of blowing stories out of the proportion they should be. But in a White House or a campaign, you think it's everything. You need to keep, you know, you need to keep your equilibrium. You need not to fall into the chasing of rabbits down a hole or buying into. We made a mistake on the oil thing. We actually had the president, because he was being criticized for his handling of it, we had him do an Oval Office speech on it. We shouldn't have. It, and and it didn't play well. When you say we had the president, you say to the president, I think you should do this. Right. He's busy. He's got so much going on in a day. Well, and, and this was not, he was not a potted plant. He had a lot of, I mean, I he was a master of his own do but domain but there. So Every day you're but giving we him, made the case. you're saying, do this. And that comes out of someone's brain. It's not like every right. day they're like, what should I do? Yes. you got to say, I have conviction around something. Do it. Yes. And then well, he the reacts. Key, you know, yeah. My particular role, and frankly, in the first two years, I don't think I did it as well as perhaps I should have for a variety of reasons. Someone has to keep the narrative of a presidency. People need to know at the core, where is that president going? You know, it is a sort of senior advisor role. It is the role that I played. It is the role 
that uh, Ed Gillespie played in the Bush White House. Rom played it in the. So it could be a chief of staff, or it could be. uh, But Rom wasn't the chief of staff when he played that role. I think the chief of staff is more of a, a chief operating officer, and so he can't. Or she can't. There's not been a woman in that role yet, but I suspect there will be yeah. uh, soon. That person needs to make sure all the trains are running so on they're time. Not the so chief someone else has officer. to spend the time thinking message all the time. So back to journalism and the lessons you learned. What do you know about people? Something that you know to be true about human beings that we who are not covering so focused yeah. on human behavior don't know. Well, I do my own podcast, and one of the reasons I enjoy it, and I can see you have an instinct for this, is everybody has a story. And I realized at some point in my life, it really was when I was writing my autobiography, I, I realized I've been a storyteller all my life. I'm really, really interested in the stories that people have because those stories are formative. I'll give you an example. I'm very fascinated by... Uh, fathers and sons in politics. I just had uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada at my Institute of Politics. We did a podcast. I was very, very interested in what it was like to grow up in the shadow of this. His father, Pierre Trudeau, was an iconic figure. Uh, It was interesting to me that his big entry into politics was when he gave the eulogy at his father's Funeral. That's when people start looking at him potentially as a, a national leader. He resisted politics as long as his father was alive. He resisted politics. But what I find is that, fa- and I learned this covering and working with Rich Daly, who is Richard J. Daly's son, Adlai Stevenson III, whose father was a presidential candidate. There is this weird approach aversion thing with the sons of people in politics. Gore is another example where they're drawn to it in some ways, because they were raised to be. They're drawn to it because they've been around it and they believe in it, but they also all seem determined to do it in their own way, to sort of not be a replica of their fathers. It's almost rebellious and it's loving. Exactly. It's both things. And part of me, I look at the same thing and I say, first and foremost, it's an act of love to their fathers and secondarily to the country. And that's, I could be way off on Justin no, Trudeau. No, I, I mean, but but I think it, he must, it, no, it he's is. expressing love through service to his dad yeah. and getting love from his dad spiritually. Yes, but on the other hand, his dad was a very austere guy. He talked about how his dad had a really hard time kind of with the glad-handing part of politics and with the sort of, he was really an ascetic, you know, he was a big thinker. And uh, so the rest of politics was uncomfortable for him. Justin Trudeau is the most warm and outgoing Doing guy. His own he, way. he really, and he talks about the fact that before he ever went into politics, he was very curious about people and he'd travel around the country and he'd talk to people and before ever revealing who, who he was, hmm. Because he's he probably trying to, to figure out who a, he was. Right. He did exactly. I have the same fascination with how our parents, like I said, we either reflect them or we're either trying to be like them or not like them. It's yes. generally one or the other. And generally it, it And sometimes there's a little of both. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean my mother was a uh, very driven person. We didn't have a very good relationship. There were qualities about her that I really disdained and resented. On the other hand, a lot of my own drive comes from her. And she was a journalist and she taught me that, but she was very oriented toward 
striving and so on. My father was very much the opposite. One of the reasons they didn't get along, he was a very um, sweet, funny, loving guy. Ultimately, he committed suicide. So that was a kind of jarring and horrible experience in my life. But his humanity was manifest and beautiful. And um, and how old were you when your dad? I was uh, nineteen. I was here at the university. You know, I didn't talk about my father's suicide for thirty years. Thirty years. Were you were you embarrassed? I, I think I was, and I was embarrassed for him. I so loved and revered him. I didn't want that to define him. And then one day, I I was thinking about it, and it was Father's Day was nearing. And I decided to write about it. And I wrote a piece for the Tribune about him for Father's Day. And what I said was, I suddenly realized that the reason that even as he was a mental health professional, he didn't feel free to go and get the help that he needed. He Mm. didn't feel free to uh, say, I need help. Because even as he helped others, right. he thought there was a stigma God, so... associated with it. And, and so you did too, I, by the way, because yes, obviously absolutely. you thought you'd be and, judged. And, and or... from that moment on, I was determined to talk about it. And, you know, Brad, what was so moving to me was when I wrote that piece, I got more reaction, more mail, more emails and calls from people who either were struggling with mental illness themselves or had lost someone who had taken their own life or were worried about that. And they said, you know, thanks for I wonder, thanks for talking about I it. I wonder how definitively mental health will become destigmatized. It's be it's becoming incrementally it's so little by little. But no, we have a, such a long way but, to go. Right. We still, look, I, I my daughter about, has epilepsy, as you know. Yeah. And epilepsy has been stigmatized because people have seizures and it's off-putting to see people in a full convulsion. So the stigma is such a yeah. tough barrier that we have to cross. Mental illness is like any other illness, and we should treat it. Right. Mental health is worth talking about. That's my that's my yes. that's my yeah, not only is it worth it talking about it, and, we have to and the more to you talk, talk about, about it, it the more everybody gets comfortable because we're all affected yes okay back to storytelling it, with a well, i'm taking a sharp turn because i've yeah, limited okay. time so you were part of the creation of of the word change as a defining headline or a defining essence of the obama campaign what were some of the other possible names or taglines god you know first of all i hate taglines because um you know to do it right, you have to really boil the essence of a campaign down to a few words. I'll tell you what, Obama was attractive to the creative community and, and there were Hollywood people. And so uh, I convened a group of them to, I said, well, why don't you guys talk among yourselves and come back to with us with ideas? And uh, they came back with this uh, tagline, which was nudge history. Come on. Nudge history. And I said, guys, But um, you exercise your veto rights. But, you know, I'll tell you, there is a certain quality to political campaigns that are different than other kinds of advertising campaigns. I had this argument with the late Steve Jobs. He had told Obama he wanted to help out and he wanted to be interested in our communications campaign. I must have gotten him on a particularly bad day. But I got on the phone with him. He said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a political media guy. He said, I think your industry is bullshit. He said, you guys don't he know opens what you're up talking with that. about. Yeah. So I said, he said, what's your communications plan? I got about 10 seconds in and he said, I don't have time for this. And he hung up. For now, real? I will say this. Come on. 
I will say this. I did hear back from him in the fall of 2008. This was the spring of 2007. He was about to roll out the iPhone, so maybe he was under pressure. Right. And he was very nice to me in the fall of 2008, but this was after our Sunrise logo, which we created, was uh, sort of as famous, at least for that moment, as the Apple. And He was nicer that time? He was. He was. But Did he literally uh, hang up on you? He did. For real? He did, yeah. He did. That's exactly what his opinions were his essence. He had an opinion on everything. Yeah, but I have a view of this, which is I think that part of what makes someone a successful disruptor is that oftentimes, and you're a disruptor, I'm not ascribing this to you necessarily, but they tend not to follow sort of the standard rules and norms. Of course. They don't feel bound by it. So on the slogan issue, though, on this tagline issue, the funniest story I have on that was uh, when I actually did Obama's Senate race, which was a forerunner to the presidential race. And I wrote this ad, and the ad had this tagline, Yes, We Can. Where did you get that from? Where did it come in your brain? How did it find the paper? Well, I was thinking about what was the essence of what we were trying to say. People said, well, a guy named Barack Obama, African-American guy, this was right after 9-11, middle name Hussein, can't get elected. And this was a bio spot, and it was about how all the barriers that people said he couldn't break, and one was becoming the first African-American president of the Harvard Law Review. Others were about legislation, significant legislation that people said no one could get done. And it the finish was, and now they say we can't change Washington. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message to say, yes, we can. And the reason I liked it was because it wasn't about him. So many political slogans are about the candidate. Yeah, This was about everyone Us. else. This was about what we could do together. And it was optimistic at a time when people were searching for optimism. So, okay, But so we got to the end of the ad and Obama said, gee, yes, we can. Yes, we can. Is that too corny? Really? And thank God Michelle Obama was sitting there because, he, you know, I gave him my whole pitch about why it was good. And he turns to Michelle and says, Mish, what do you think? And she just kind of shook her head and said, it's not corny. And he said, OK, let's do it. So <laughs> I th- if she hadn't been there, I'm not sure we would have ever done it. It became sort of a, the tagline that yes. survived through his entire presidency. That's amazing. There's a story within that story, by the way, about the security or insecurity of leaders and the need for affirmation yes. and the reliance on a life partner to, oh, yeah. to check you. Okay, so let's go to entrepreneurs. I'm friends with some of the leaders of IDEO. IDEO is this really famous design thinking consultancy. And I asked them to teach me how to tell a story, curious how they would do it. So let me ask you, how do I tell a great story? Well, first, the question is, how? what is the essence of a great storyteller? Yes, great story. That's exactly. really the question. And so that, I think it actually begins with what we're doing right here. It begins with curiosity. It begins with getting to the essence of whoever a person is, whatever a mission is, you have to understand what the authentic being or mission is. When I think of the successful campaigns that I ran or where I conceptualized the strategy, I always tried to begin them by understanding who the person was that I was working with, what the environment was that we were running in, because there are a hundred things I could say about Brad Keywell, but what are the two or three that go to the essence of who you are? Because a story doesn't mean anything if it doesn't illuminate something larger, if it doesn't go to the essence of who someone is. So, you know, when I tell you stories about Barack Obama, 
I'm telling you stories that I think go to the essence of who he is. And aren't you also focusing on the essence of what you think the listener yes, yes, should be? Yes, absolutely. You're trying to, t you're yeah. teaching me, you're teaching Without me. question. And so you have to understand not just who you're talking to, but not just who you're talking about, right. but who you're talking to about them. So what is relevant to them? What would be received as valuable information is the second part of good storytelling. And then how about length or cadence? Do you prefer, do you, is your advice, keep it short, keep it long, you know, I don't know. Poetic, I mean, I think, uh, repeat you, the you same know, words. So I, I think it's less about the length as whether there is animation in the story. I mean, are you bringing the story to life? Can you describe the scene? I just told you the story about the yes, we can. And about exchange. Kennedy. So here's a question. Yeah. John F. Kennedy created a picture for you in your gut that last that's lasted a lifetime. Is there anybody telling stories today in business, politics, anywhere that is so inspirational that you think they have the power to capture the imagination of a 10-year-old and change their life through stories? Well... Let's certify that I thought that was one of Obama's strengths was that he was great at narrative. He was a writer. You know, he had the soul of a writer and that really was helpful to him in telling stories. I feel like I'm defaulting to those I know and I've been exposed to. And uh, there's a guy who uh, you may not know who was a, also a former client of mine named Deval Patrick, who was the governor I, of Massachusetts. Oh, great. He has that same quality. He I'll tell you, he won this improbable race for governor of Massachusetts. Again, African-American guy, never held office before. He's a wonderful, he's a wonderful guy. But there are other people out there who have that capacity. I mean, one of the things we should acknowledge is in a weird, horrible way, in my view, horrible, Donald Trump has a way to captivate people. And I think he motivates people. But, you know, generally it's around grievance and not aspiration. I'd throw another guy in there, in that in Mitch Landrew, the mayor of New Orleans. You ever see an inspiring speech? See his speech about why they took down the Confederate monuments in uh, in New Orleans, and it, it was one of the most moving speeches I've heard in a really long time. But the question is whether you, how authentic are these stories? Do people sense that they're coming from a place in your soul that of they sincerity believe? Yeah. you know, yeah. Um, Current administration, what lesson? is happening right now without us really being able to look back just yet? Well, the importance of and the fragility of institutions, because I believe in democracy and I believe that when you win, you win the right to make policy. I don't like many of the policies of the administration, but I accept that. What is most important is that you be a faithful trustee of institutions, and these what, democratic what institutions. What can the average person do to well, protect institutions? Well, Justice Brandeis said the most important office in a, in, a, in a democracy is the office of citizen. And we've seen people mobilize. These This whole last year has been a year of mobilization. You've seen great change yeah. in elections around the country. In November, there's going to be a very significant election. No one can look at the 2016 election or should and say elections don't matter. 
they do matter. They do matter. So I think that has, you see a mobilization of people, that's important. I think journalists have played a heroic role in the last year. Yes, sometimes there's too much editorializing, but mostly they're shining a bright light in dark places. And that is the role of journalists that no the founding what, fathers, right. the, the founders uh, envisioned for journalists. The courts have played an important role. And even the Congress, despite the fact that the Republican Party is largely uh, folded in the face of this Trump tsunami. The Congress has not rolled over for him. Do you think so, that education? Uh, but, so I think these institutions have proven themselves to be resilient. What I worry about is the constant hammer blows and where the, the president of the United States suggests that the FBI, the CIA, journalists, the courts, the every nothing's on the legit. Everything is corrupt. Everything is politically motivated. You this know, is, it's a test every one of the institutions is almost uh, is being tested right yeah, now, right? But uh, we saw this just, uh, I don't know when this will be down, up, uploaded, downloaded, but I guess downloaded. Yeah. But whatever. Streamed. We just saw it yeah. streamed. Yeah. Okay. Shows how yeah. technically savvy I am as a podcaster. But the FBI director who Donald Trump appointed testified before Congress and told the truth about how the FBI handled this case of Porter, the White House aide. It's courageous. To me, it was an example of institutions working and why they are important. Yeah. So uh, so I'm both discouraged by what I see and encouraged by the vibrancy of our institutions. Okay, so lightning round of some questions. So here's a one top of my head right now. Do you think that this democracy will exist in 500 years? Well, if the planet exists as we know it, I, I think the democracy will exist. You wrote a book. 500 years, man. I, I'm trying to frame. I think that, that the fragility of democracy is something that could be a whole nother podcast. I'd love to. No, no, that, I, we could talk about that for hours. I, I'm concerned about it and the challenges that technology yeah, uh, poses right. You're to. rethinking people's roles as people. There's a philosophical thing we could riff on as and well. And it's happening so fast that we can't get our arms around it. Democracy is built to be in certain ways lumbering when there are times of great division. Okay, you wrote a book. I know how challenging it was to write a book yourself, which, which you did. Yeah. What chapter are you in right now in your life? What's the title of, of the current chapter of your life? Well, if I reveal it, what do I do with my next book? <laughs> I think I'm in the teaching phase of my life. You know, I decided that I was done with campaigns after Obama because it, I would never find one as uh, experience as good as the one I had, but also because it was time. And so my mission is to impart the lessons of what I've learned over a lifetime in politics and journalism. Is political advisorship or thinking and strategizing art, more art or more science? Well, I would say art. What's your morning routine? Get up, look at my device like everybody else, watch uh, morning news, get to the gym. And then it varies depending on where uh, where my staff is sending me. If I said, tell me one trait that is the most important for you when you're uh, assessing whether, whether you should hire somebody, the trait that stands out as a predictor for success in your world. These are profound questions to throw at me at the I'm end of a, just, an know, exhausting my job, right? <laughs> a, an exhausting grilling. The tides like are turned, this. like I said. I get uh, to be the questioner. I think intellectual curiosity. Last but not least, one quote that's on a big billboard on the highway forevermore. That's from you. That lets us understand the thing we need to know that you're telling us and remind ourselves every day. What does the quote say? Well, maybe I should 
take the cheap and easy route and say, yes, we can. But oh, I, nice. I mean, I'm a believer in, uh, you know, I don't really know if our democracy will be around 500 years. I think we do have challenges, but I, I, I believe what Churchill said, it's a lousy system, but it's better than all the rest. And I love what, what John F. Kennedy said, Brad, in, when I saw him in 1960 was, I'm not here to say that if you like me, everything will be easy. Being an American citizen in the 20th century is a hazardous duty filled with peril and also hope, but we'll decide which path we take. In other words, we can grab the wheel of history and steer, and that's a beautiful thing, that ability to determine our future. So I continue to be a believer. David Axelrod, on so many levels, you are an inspiration. I consider you uh, a dear friend, and I also consider you a role model, and this last hour has shown why. You are an authentic optimist, and that's really what that last statement showed, is that you mean it. And so there's so much to learn from you. I thank you for letting me turn the tables on you. you. Yeah, man, like now I'm worried. You're a damn good podcaster. Back to work, thank you so much, David. (laughs) What goes through people's minds when making life-changing decisions? How does one know when to pursue an idea? Check out The Upside with Brad Keywell on iTunes and SoundCloud.